Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these two psalms that are before us. And Lord, we ask that you would use them in our hearts to bear us up on wings of eagles and carry us from this place to to meet with you. Lord, bring us all the way home, we pray, on the power of your word. We ask that you'd make us strong by the power of your spirit. We pray that you'd cause us to trust wholly in the name of Jesus. Amen. I may have related this before, but when I was in college and and early seminary, I had the opportunity to work at a Christian sports and adventure camp called Canacuck. And for whatever reason, after my first year there, the leadership thought that I would be a good disciplinarian. And so they, they, what they, they, they came up with this new um, system that they, they referred, they put these tents down by the lake. Everybody else slept in cabins, on bunk beds, you know, on mattresses. And they put these tents down by the lake, where we slept on the ground, in sleeping bags. And they called these tents the Hilton. And if there were... If there were any children uh, in the camp, 13 to 18-year-old kids, you know, uh, middle school, high schoolers, if there were any kids who got to the place where they were a distraction to their cabin, to their counselors and the other, other campers with them, they would take them out of their cabin and put them with me and another guy down in the Hilton, these two tents down by the lake, and we were separated from the rest of camp, and basically our responsibility was to say to these kids, okay... Uh, because of your behavior, you forfeited the right to play at camp, so you're not going to get to go ride the jet skis and do the ski boats and the blob down on the lake and the, the zip line and the basketball and football and everything else. No, what you're going to do is you're going to work all day. You're going to work all day, and we're going to run all day. And we love you, so all this labor we're going to do right alongside you. And so from sunup to sundown, from 7 in the morning until the end of the day, uh, we, would, we would go in these two-hour blocks where uh, first I would take the kids, and first thing in the morning, we would go for a 40-minute run. And then we would go to the kitchen, and we would scrub pots and pans. And then we would go to the baseball field just as it started to get good and hot, and we would, we would uh, de-rock the baseball field, you know, all these pebbles and stones that don't need to be on the infield dirt. We're throwing these rocks out of the field. We just worked all day long. And the whole time... What sustained me, so I, I wasn't, you know, a kid who was hit, but I was having to do all this labor, and what sustained me was, as, as we would run, I would, I would quote to these kids Isaiah 40, where, where it says, even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. So we'd be out there jogging, you know, running through the hills and the woods and around camp, just running, and I'd be quoting these verses, and they'd be repeating them back to me. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And it it was remarkable the way the Lord preserved me on those verses and the way that God's word transformed these kids who would do all this labor with me. They often... They would often come to me at the end of the term and say, the two or three days or whatever that I spent with you were the best time for me at camp. And it, it was the word of God and, and the love of this place that was, 
that was um, changing them. I tell that story in part because here in Psalm 47, you know, hoping in the Lord, it's sort of like praising the Lord. It, it, you're, you're confident of what is coming, what he's going to do, and that confidence is bearing you up on the wings of eagles. It's giving you renewed energy and strength. And um, this morning, my, I, we woke up and my wife said to me, what's wrong with you? And I said, I think I'm just weary, just tired. And then I think there's something else at, at work also, um, and that is that this, this past week there was this conference here in town. Maybe you uh, went together for the gospel. You know, the Sunday after together for the gospel is kind of a de- depressing time to preach because, because you're not stepping into the pulpit as John Piper or John MacArthur, and you don't have Matt Chandler's sense of humor, and, and it's just depressing, you know? It, it's, sort of like, it's sort of like watching... Um, um, Mike Trout hit a baseball out of the park, and then you realize, okay, I'm going to step up there, and I'm going to dribble one back to the pitcher. So, but, but look at the Word of God before us. And the Word of God is it's strengthening and fortifying, and it will bear us up on the wings of eagles. So what I hope is going to happen here this morning as we look at Psalm 47 and 48 is our eyes are going to be lifted off of what is right in front of us. I mean, like, you, like me, you probably have a whole list of things that you need to get done between now and the end of next week. And, and where our eyes are going to be placed instead of all that stuff that's right in front of us is on the final horizon. So I think that these psalms are anticipating the end of all things. And, and the re- one of the reasons I think that is because these psalms are dealing with a time when the nations are going to praise the Lord. Look at, look at verse 9 of Psalm 47. It says, The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. All the peoples of the nations, foreign nations, Gentile nations, they're going to be gathered together as the people of the God of Abraham. So I think we're looking at, at an end-time worship uh, celebration here. That's what we've got here in Psalms 47 and 48. Uh, now, let me, let me back up from these two psalms for just a moment and talk a little bit about the flow of thought. And um, what I would suggest is that there's a kind of correspondence between the, the narrative of First and Second Samuel and the arrangement of these psalms. So if you're familiar with First and Second Samuel, you know that at the, end of, at the end of First Samuel, Saul dies, and Saul has been persecuting David. And all through book one of the psalms, there are all these psalms where David is he's in difficulty, he's being persecuted, he's crying out to the Lord for deliverance. And then finally at the end of book one, it's like all that difficulty is over. You know, he says in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry and he lifted me up out of that miry pit, out of the miry clay. So, so at the end of 1 Samuel, David is delivered. At the end of book 1, David is delivered. And then 2 Samuel opens, and first David is anointed king over Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 2, and then he's anointed king over uh, Israel and Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and then they bring the ark into Jerusalem in chapter 6, and then the Lord makes those promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I think that what we've got here is this section, Psalms 47 and 48, 
where what's being celebrated is the enthronement of David and, and what David immediately begins to do in 2 Samuel 8 through 10 is he starts conquering surrounding nations, expanding the borders of Israel in every direction. And there's a, a statement here in um, Psalm 47 verse 5 which says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And that, is, that uses the same language as 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 15, where they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And uh, 2 Samuel 6, 15 says, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Same exact language. Uh, and so the Lord is entering Jerusalem with the shout and the sound of the trumpet. And, uh, and I think that's what these psalms are celebrating. And then in the narrative of Samuel, you get to 2 Samuel 11, and that's where David sins with Bathsheba. And that's what we're going to get to when we get to Psalm 51. So there's kind of a correspondence here. But, but what's happening is the, the historical narrative is pointing forward to a new David, a new king from David's line, and a new city that David is going to conquer. You know, uh, earlier in the service, we read 2 Samuel 5, where uh, David conquered Jerusalem. Well, there's going to come a king from David's line who's going to conquer the city, and he's going to make it new. And, and I think that's what we're celebrating here in these psalms, Psalms 47 and 48, and anticipating the future on the basis of what's happened in the past. So let's look together at Psalm 47. And this psalm, it opens with a call for all nations to praise the Lord. Look at verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. And it's going to close the same way. Look at verse 9. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. So the opening and, verse, opening and closing verses of Psalm 47 are speaking of all the peoples of the earth praising the Lord. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Why is this happening? Why are all peoples being summoned to clap and shout to God? Well, I think that this summons here in Psalm 47.1 is building off of Psalm 46. Look back at Psalm 46, verse 8, where the, where the psalmist says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. So in Psalm 46, uh, there's this unmaking of creation as the mountains and the earth give way and the, the waters roar and foam, and then the Lord puts an end to war. How does he do that? Well, he defeats all rival kings, doesn't he? He shames all rival gods, and he subjugates all peoples to his king, the king who was celebrated in Psalm 45 the mighty warrior who girded his sword on his, on his thigh and went out to conquer. And so all the nations have been subjugated in Psalm 46, and now the Lord, or, or the psalmist, is call, calling all the peoples of the earth to praise the Lord. And then the reason is given there in verse 2, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And if we stay with this flow of thought moving out of Psalms 45 and 46 into Psalm 47. This makes perfect sense, doesn't it? God has put an end to war and he alone will be exalted. 
Look at Psalm 46.10. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth, the Lord says. He is the only power that stands after the apocalyptic purging of the earth. All the seed of the serpent have been defeated. All the enemies of God have been destroyed. And he alone is left to be feared. This awesome God. The Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. Verse 3, he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. So in, in part, uh, I think the psalmist could have in view the way that God subdued in the past the Egyptians and then the Canaanites and then all the nations that David has conquered. If you're looking at a CSB, Christian Standard Bible, or an NAS, that line, verse 3 there, is in the present tense. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. This is the way the Lord acts on behalf of his people. The Lord subdues the nations. He defeats their enemies for them. And in our weariness, this is an encouragement, isn't it? The Lord is the one who fights our battles. The Lord is the one who is going to win the victories. The Lord is the one who's going to change the hearts of our children. The Lord is the one who's going to see that, that um, this person with whom we're sharing the gospel, their heart gets changed and they want to come to Jesus. The Lord's the one who does this. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. And then verse 4, he chose our heritage for us. This, historically speaking, this has in view the, the land of Canaan, the land of promise. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. So, so Jacob is a poetic way of referring to the people of Israel. And, and the, the, the text is saying that the Lord has set his love on Jacob, as in the Lord loves Israel. He's chosen to love Israel. And then the pride of Jacob is the land that God has given to them. So, so what's, happen, what's happening here is the psalmist is using, in verses uh, 3 and 4 there, he's using that historical sequence of the exodus and the conquest to point forward to a final exodus-style salvation and a final moment when the Lord is going to give an inheritance to his people, the people that he has chosen. So the Lord, the Lord blesses his people, he loves his people, and then at the end of verse 4, we read this word, Selah. And then it, we come in verse 5 to this center point of this psalm. This is right in the middle of this psalm's structure, and this is what is being celebrated in this psalm. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And I would invite you to try to envision this scene. I would invite you to envision the divine warrior, the holy king. Imagine King Jesus. Imagine the, the, the uh, picture in your mind, something like that scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, where they have the tents set up, and they have Aslan, the high king's tent there in the middle. And so imagine, if you will, the, uh, the, the, the attendants, the soldiers there staring, standing at the entrance to that tent, and, and the... The, the flaps are pulled back and the trumpets begin to blare. And then King Jesus himself marches out with a shout, 
with this stirring, ringing cry that causes hearts to rise and, and everyone's skin, flesh to tingle. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And then naturally there's this response in verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. There's a fourfold repetition of this call to sing praise. And, and in Hebrew, it's just one word. It's the, it's the verb that you get the word psalm from. So, so you could translate this, psalm God. Psalm. And, it, and it's a plural, so everybody do this. Psalm our King. Psalm. The psalmist is urgently, enthusiastically calling people to respond to God, to respond to the coming forth at last of the king. And he wants people to do what's happening in this psalm, doesn't he? He's telling people to herald and celebrate the mighty acts of God in poetic, song-like terms. It's, it's almost like Paul urging the churches to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. So there's this staccato series of imperatives here. Sing praises to our God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. And then again, the, the explanation is given in verse 7 there. For God is the King of all the earth. There are no places that remain where He is not Lord. This is the fulfillment of the, the realization of what we petition the Lord to do in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done. Your Kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And then the last line there of verse 7, sing praises, re re repeating that same thing again, psalm. And then the ESV renders this with a psalm, but you might notice there's a footnote, and in the, mar in the lower margin it says Hebrew maskil. And, and you may recognize that word maskil from several of the superscriptions of the psalms. A maskil is a a, a, a a poem, a psalm, that causes wisdom. That's what, that's what you could translate that word maskil to mean. It's a causer of wisdom. So the psalmist is saying, psalm the Lord with a maskil that is a causer of wisdom. What kind of wisdom? Well, the kind of wisdom that fears the Lord, right? The kind of wisdom that celebrates the mighty acts of God. The kind of wisdom that fills the people of God with high thoughts, of the one who set his love on them and then broke the chains of their bondage and then provided for them all the way to the land of promise. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God reigns over the nations. There's a lot going on in the world right now. If you... If you look south to Brazil, you see corruption. They're impeaching or trying to impeach their president. All these people in their government taking kickbacks from government uh, businesses, apparently. If you look uh, to, the, to the east, you see a menace uh, in Vladimir Putin who seems to be wanting to uh, uh, gain more and more power and take all he can get. And, and then if you look here at home, you see some distressing things as well. And this text says that a day is coming when all these corrupt and unrighteous and malevolent and foolish and misguided and deceitful people are going to be removed. And the true king is going to reign. God reigns 
over the nations. The next line there of verse 8 says, God sits on his holy throne. Um, The King James, I prefer the King James rendering here. It says, God sits on the throne of his holiness. That's a more literal rendering. I think it's a better rendering. And And I would invite you to think about what it means for God to sit on the throne of his holiness. I think it indicates that God's purity, his perfect and absolute purity, which separates him, sets him apart as holy, distinguishes him from everything else in other creation by his utter devotion to righteousness and love, his devotion to his own character, that is the seat of his power. That is the throne of his judgment. The throne of God's holiness is is what gives him this, this governing authority. It's the source of his wisdom. God sits on the throne of his holiness. And then in verse 9, there is this consummation of the celebration of God's conquest. As as we have this, this description of the princes of the peoples gathering to obey verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. And now here comes the procession of the nobility of the nations gathering together. And here, the foreigners, there in verse 9, are described as the people of the God of Abraham. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 12, 3. The Lord promised to Abraham, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And here it's happening. The peoples of the nations, non-Israelites, are here incorporated into the people of God. We might even say something like they are one new man in Christ Jesus, the way that the Apostle Paul described it. So the nations have been subdued and with all other powers defeated, all people clearly belong to the God of the Bible. And then there's the explanation here in verse verse 9 at the end of the verse there. For the shields of the earth belong to God. What are the shields of the earth? It's everything that people anywhere look to for protection. Any source of protection ultimately comes from God. The shields of the earth belong to God. He is the only source of protection. Symbolically referenced here as shields for anyone, anywhere. And then the last line says, He is highly exalted. So that what the psalmist called for at the beginning is now realized at the end. Clap your hands, O all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. And now at the end, he is highly exalted. This is the same thing that we saw at the end of 46, where the Lord, end of Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth Derek Kidner writes, this is the point to which everything is moving. That's where the world is going. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. It will infallibly come to pass. So Psalm 47, I think we could learn from this psalm that we exist for God's glory. And our problem is that we keep wanting to exist for ourselves, 
for our own pleasure and renown rather than God's. Psalm 47 is celebrating the day when the Lord's king, Psalm 45, will have established the Lord's new city, Psalm 46, and all the nations will celebrate him as the world's only true king. And beholding this, it it helps us get over ourselves. Understanding this helps us to get past the little pity parties that we throw for ourselves and the grievances that we nurse and the the ways that we think people ought to show us deference or ought to meet our needs or whatever, and, and we get swept up in this worship celebration. Because this king who's celebrated here is triumphant, resplendent, and worthy. When the Lord has gone up with a shout, when Psalm 47.5 is realized, when the shofar sounds, the faith will have become sight. And that brings us to Psalm 48. And this psalm is going to pick up right where Psalm 47 leaves off. So if you look at Psalm 48, verse 1, we read here, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. That's exactly what was happening at the end of Psalm 47. And actually, in in Hebrew, the word rendered highly He is highly exalted in Psalm 47.9 is the same word rendered greatly in the phrase greatly to be praised there in 48.1. So these two psalms are linked together there. And also, uh, it's it's as though the the, the, the foreign nations have now come to the city. And and what's going to be celebrated here in Psalm 48 is the way that the city radiates with God's glory. Uh, so, so let's look there at verses 1 through 3 of this psalm where, where the, uh, the psalmist is, is going, to, he's going to, he's going to show us God's glory by showing us the beauty of God's city. So in verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. This is really similar to Isaiah chapter 2. If you remember that passage, um, Isaiah says that in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be high and lifted up. And, And he goes on to talk about how all the nations are going to come streaming to Zion. They're going to say to one another, come, let us go up to the house of the Lord that he must, that he may teach us his way, that we may learn his law. Same, same scenario here that the psalmist is envisioning. The, the exaltation of Mount Zion, if not in elevate, literal altitude, then in significance, both spiritually and in terms of, of what it means for all the inhabitants of the earth. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north. Uh, this, this reference to the far north, um, there, there, it, it's used a number of places in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 14, verse 12 and 13, this is where Lucifer, the son of the morning, wanted to take his seat. He, he sought to take his seat in the far north. And in Ezekiel 38, if, you're, if you remember that passage, where uh, Gog of Magog gathers his armies to go up and attack uh, the Lord, he gathers people from from this place, the far north. 
And um, it, it seems that what's happening is that the psalmist is using these things to say the far north doesn't belong to Lucifer or to Gog of Magog. The far north belongs to the Lord, to, to the God of the Bible. Um, it, it's also uh, the case that the Canaanites, they, they believed that Baal resided in, in the far north. And, um, and there are various references to, to the mountain where Baal was worshipped as a beautiful hill, as an inheritance, as a holy mountain, a lovely, mighty mountain. And so the psalmist seems to be engaging in a polemic against the worship of Baal by referring to Mount Zion in these ways here in Psalm 48. This is the city at the end of verse 1 there, verse 2, sorry, the city of the great king. And then look at verse 3. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Now, you know what a citadel is, right? A citadel is a stronghold. It's a place that when, when the enemy attacks... You go into the citadel, and the walls and the gates of the citadel hold the enemy out. Look at verse 3 again. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Something happened there. So what's the fortress? The fortress is not the building. The fortress is the God who is present with his people. God, rather than the castle, is the stronghold. And then in verses 4 through 7, there's this description of the way that the city overawes and defeats the enemies. Verse 4, for behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. So you can envision these armies marching up toward Jerusalem and, and the imposing nature of the walls and the, the buildings, the citadels, just undoes their resolve. They were astounded, they were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. That description of a woman in labor is often used to describe the way that people are going to feel when God finally comes, when when God visits his enemies on the last day. They will writhe like a woman in labor. And then verse 7 is very it reminds me of the book of Jonah. Do you remember what happened in the book of Jonah? The Lord says to Jonah, up, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, nope, I'm going to Tarshish. So he goes the other direction, and he goes down to the, the coast, and he buys passage on a, on a ship going to Tarshish. And then you remember what the Lord does? The Lord says, I'm going to take this wind, and I'm going to hurl it on the waters. And, and the book of Jonah describes the ship thinking that it's going to be shattered. It's personifying the ship. The ship is thinking to break up. Look at verse 7 here. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. So there's this wind that's shattering these ships. I think, I'm inclined to think that the psalm maybe comes before the book of Jonah and is influencing the book of Jonah, but I could be wrong about that. At any rate, it's describing the way that God's power is bigger than the navies of the earth. No navy is going to stand against the Lord. And that brings us to Psalm 48, verse 8. And and what's communicated here, I think, is the, 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 the main thrust of Psalm 48, where the psalmist says, as we have heard. What's, what's, he, what's he probably talking about? He's probably talking about the mighty deeds of the Lord that are recorded in the Scriptures. 
the, the great acts of God on behalf of his people. As we have heard about what you did in creation, at the Exodus, in, in sustaining the people through the wilderness, at the, at the conquest of the land, and in all of David's victories over his people, as we have heard, so have we seen. So what he's saying is, when we look at the city, your power, your glory on display in the city corresponds to, to the report of your power and glory that we've heard in the scriptures. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. Now, that's the Old Covenant situation. They come up to the city. Perhaps what they, what, they in, what they behold there is something like the Passover or one of the other feasts where, where they see God's mighty acts on behalf of the people reenacted and they, and they reconsider God's glory and they behold the, the wonder of the temple and they praise God for all these things. Let's bring it into a New Covenant context. How would, what would this look like in our context? As we have heard, so have we seen. Well, I hope that what people have heard about Christianity is that Jesus died to pay the penalty for his people. Jesus died uh, to accomplish the forgiveness of sins that God has made possible through the death of Jesus for everybody that will turn from sin and trust in Christ. I hope that that's what they've heard about Christianity. And if they were to come to this little city of God, metaphorically speaking, if they were to come and watch us worship, we hope, don't we, that what they would see is, as we have heard, so have we seen. We heard about Jesus laying down his life for his people, and now what we see in your lives is you all laying down your lives for one another. And I think that if somebody were to come to Kenwood Baptist Church, that's exactly what they'd see. Praise God. Just this past week, there was a group of ladies that came up here and cooked more spaghetti than we could eat. And then they stayed after and cleaned it all up, and we made a mess in that fellowship hall. And I didn't hear anybody grumbling. There was this glad willingness. There was this joyful, heartfelt love that was communicated to all these people that some of you ladies have never met before. And, and just an expression of love. And, I mean, just if, you, if you're new here... Um, Hang around and watch what happens when somebody has a baby. There will be an outpouring of support and help and, 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 and love through meals. Watch what happens when somebody winds up in the hospital. Watch what happens when somebody has a need. And now, if you're here, sitting here and you're thinking to myself, well, I had a need and nobody helped me, what I would say is, let us know. Let us know what's going on. Let us in. If, if we don't see the need, we, we, I mean, we want to see things. We hope to be able to help. Make us aware of where the needs are, and I think what you'll find is that people here are ready to lay down their lives. And it'll be like, as we heard about Jesus laying down his life, so we have seen in this congregation. And if you're here and you're not a believer, I think that the evidence of, of this kind of love, the, the love Jesus said that is greater than than any other kind of love, this willingness to lay down your life for your friends, I think that ought to woo you to Christianity. I think you ought to think to yourself, where else am I going to find anybody that loves this way? Where else am I going to see anything like this? 
As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Now, I think in verses 9 through 11, what the psalmist continues to do is he continues to contemplate the city. And what he sees when he looks at the city is evidence of the character of God. So in verse 9, he's going to talk about steadfast love. That's that word hesed. And then in verse 10, he's going to mention the word righteousness, tzedek. And then in verse 11, he's going to mention judgments, mishpat. And if you're familiar with with, uh, these these terms, uh, steadfast love, righteousness, and judgments, this is the character of God that's on display in the city. So the psalmist says, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. We go into the temple, and it makes us think about you. And then he says in verse 10, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. God's glory is spreading through to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Everything that God does is true and right and good. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Now think about what's being said there. Just judgment wins God praise. Let Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah, the people of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Just judgment wins God's praise. Righteous character, your right hand is filled with righteousness. Righteous character results in a good exercise of power. And steadfast love, verse 9, We've thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. Steadfast love surrounds the presence of the Lord in his dwelling place. God's presence makes God's character visible to and in God's people. Again, I think if you look around here, you'll see expressions of God's steadfast love. You'll see people pursuing God's righteousness in accordance, God's righteousness in accordance with God's judgments. And so then the psalm concludes with an invitation to take a look. You ought to contemplate, it's like the psalmist is saying, you want to see God's glory? Verse 12, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, see the strength of the Lord on display. Verse 13, consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. Look around. Why? Verse 13, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He's not saying the city is God. He's saying the city puts the glory of God on display. In the same way that I would say to to the glory of God, Kenwood Baptist Church... I hope you know what a blessing it is to serve this congregation. I mean, we, we feel so enormously encouraged all the time. Uh, Denny and I were talking last week, and, and we agree. We've, uh, we've had this conversation many times. I'd rather preach at Kenwood than anywhere else. I'd rather be, with, I'd rather be here than anywhere else on a Sunday morning. The glory of God is on display to and in his people. The last line of verse 14 says, He will guide us forever. But look at the footnote there in the ESV. You've got a little one after the word forever. You look down in the lower margin, and it says, He will guide us beyond death. 
He will guide us beyond death. I think that's the preferable reading. And what this is saying is, God's power will not be stymied by old age. We're probably all going to get to a place where we're going to wake up from a nap and not know where we are. Maybe not remember our name. God is not going to stop leading us when that day comes. God's power is not going to be brought to an end by death. He will, lead, he will guide us beyond death. The power of God transcends the end of our physical lives. So Psalm 47 presents the worship of the great king, and Psalm 48 declares that the great king's glory is on display in his city. You know, human beings, we're made in the image and likeness of God. And those who are made in the image of their creator will never build a grander city than the one that will be built by the one whose image we bear. What God will do in the new Jerusalem surpasses, will surpass any city ever built anywhere. So not Rome with its Colosseum, Not Beijing with its forbidden city, not Paris with its Louvre, not Washington, D.C. with its mall will surpass the splendor of the city of God. I can remember a few years ago uh, walking around Washington, D.C. and seeing all of these resplendent white marble, glorious statues and all of these facilities. It's, It's a beautiful city. And the new Jerusalem... D.C. won't even, compa- won't even begin to compare to the new Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus will come, Psalm 45. The creation will be unmade, Psalm 46. The nations will gather to praise the Lord, Psalm 47. And the new Jerusalem will shine forth with the glory of God in Christ, Psalm 48. Let's pray. Father, you are more worthy of our trust and our praise and our thanks than our hearts can even begin to feel, much less put into words. But we pray that you'd help us. We pray that you'd cause us to feel things that that surpass what we can articulate. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to live like those who belong to your city. We pray that you'd help us to gird up the loins of our minds and pursue holiness because you're holy. And we pray that you'd help us to rejoice together and love one another and serve you as you lead us beyond death. In Christ's name, amen.